welcome to Upbringing, where Hannah and Kelty, twins, mothers, and works in progress. Upbringing is a movement that empowers us all to engage bravely with the hardest aspects of parenting, to create positive change in ourselves, our families, and the world. Join us to build intention, elevate skills, and align our parenting practices with our greatest ideals. When we practice trust over fear, connection over control, and progress over perfection, we're not just raising our kids, we're raising ourselves. Let's show up and grow up. Today's episode is supported by Primary, a baby and children's clothing brand offering quality-made, gender-neutral basics. Mothers Christina and Galen founded Primary because they couldn't find sturdy, soft clothing without the logos, slogans, sequins, and embellishments so common these days. Yes, and as much as our kids love the bling, Primary's rainbow color wheel of simple basics has something for each of them. We also value clothing that's ethically manufactured and Ocotec Standard 100 certified meaning that it's free from harmful chemicals. Also cool, no item is more than 25 bucks. Sweet. Learn more about primary and support upbringing by visiting today's show notes or our partners page at upbringing.co. Now onto our conversation. Kaylin Rich is the executive director of Bitch Media and a professional speaker who has toured the U.S. delivering keynotes on intersectionality and LGBTQ issues. She's also a writer whose work has been published around the internet and an organizer whose experience dates back to stuffing folders for her parents' union meetings around the dining room table. Her debut YA book, Girls Resist, A Guide to Activism, Leadership, and Starting a Revolution, came out in 2018. We loved talking with Kaylin about teaching our children consent how to unlearn our implicit biases, and the ways we can respectfully interact with our kids and the world around gender identity. I think resistance can mean a lot of different things. And I think that was the impetus for sort of framing girls resist around resistance is that it is both the action of taking resistance at the singular individual level and it's also about building durable change and being part of a long legacy of movement building and activism yeah like collective resistance mm-hmm. totally That's exactly right and what what made you gear it towards young adults it's a great not adults or yeah. we learned a lot as full-grown adults <laughs> 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 I'm glad. I mean, that's the thing is uh, Girls Resist isn't really for any particular person. It's more about who it is explicitly for and who doesn't always have access to these ideas. So I'll be really honest that the idea wasn't uniquely mine. The publisher, Cork Books, has an editor who's no longer there who was looking to do some sort of teen activism handbook. Um, Around the very same time, I'd started writing a column for the website autostrail.com, which is a, a queer women and non-binary run website on pop culture, lifestyle, politics, all of that. Uh, One of the last standing indie websites of that kind. And uh, when the election happened in 2016, I had already started thinking about way before we even knew that that was going to happen. I, I thought about as a community organizer and someone who's worked in advocacy and policy as well, that I wanted to write some sort of what was going to be a mini series for Autostraddle about community organizing and activism, both the theory and the practice. And the pitch was approved, and it was just sort of sitting on my shelf, waiting to be taken down. Similarly, Quirk Books was looking for someone to write a teen activism handbook. It was an idea that had just been sort of sitting on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And then the election happened. So, I mean, these ideas were important before 2016, right? But what did happen is that November 2016 came, and people felt very overwhelmed, and it seemed like a good time to take that column off the shelf and it became yeah. a more regular column. I actually just wrapped it uh, with the last, the last uh, in that series a couple of weeks ago. I just started writing this column, and the editor at Quirk Books, who I worked with, found one of my articles just randomly, I think maybe on Twitter, and kind of cold reached out to me. Which was bizarre. It's my first book. I've never written a book. Um, I went to school for writing, but didn't really end up using that degree in a tangible way up until now. And uh, that's how we started on the project. So it was always going to be a book for young adults. And for me, it was really important that the book was very clearly for young people, even though the information is is useful to people of all ages. And it was very clearly for, for girls and for anyone else who's experienced a marginalized identity who may not think that this information is for them. So most of the organizing books out there 
honestly, before the election. And since then, there's been more and more, which I'm glad for, uh, including Girls Resist. But before that, most of the organizing manuals out there were written by older, mostly white men, to be honest. Sometimes Mm -hmm. white men and women together, but mostly older white men coming out of labor movements uh, or political campaigns. And who, it's not the information wasn't available to everyone. It's just that it wasn't written, number one, with a feminist angle in mind. And number two, in a way that like really specifically said, this book is for you if you were a young person or if you were anyone who just wouldn't relate to that kind of a, of a teacher or mentor. So it was really important to me once we took it on that not only was it for teens, but that it was for people whose voices don't always get prioritized when we talk about leadership. Yeah. When I read, um, I mean, and it's just a fucking beautiful book, like talk about accessibility Mm -hmm. on multiple levels with form and function. I feel like when Kelty and I were reading through it, um, I don't know. I did a lot of processing about our high school stuff. I mentioned to Kelty, Mm. like, I don't think I even realized, for example, that we had kind of dressing norms. There weren't any rules in high school, but we were made to feel shameful at times about things we wore. Like we're very like small breasted and, you know, would wear like little tank tops because we thought we didn't want bra straps hanging out. And several times we'd be told to cover up Mm -hmm. or like a math teacher once said that I needed to cover up because I was making men want to touch me. Things like that where I was just like, this is fucking shit is wrong. But back then I didn't know that I could be an activist. You said no, but you didn't like storm the castle and drag him in the the principal's office and been like, this is ridiculous. You know, and mom and dad were great. They were like, that's ridiculous. But they didn't say, you know, you're right. We do about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I did some processing reading this on that term for sure. Like that's a real thing. Like thinking about it from the high school school perspective. Yeah. Um, and then from the mom perspective, your book really touched us too. I feel like Kelty and I very much believe that we were raising the next generation and what we do and how we parent is really fucking important, even just in our individual family you know, level. But there are things that Kelty and I get really mad about and up in arms about. And I think sometimes I'm just like, how could I ever make a change about that? you know, corporal punishment is still legal in the US, mm. you know, a bunch of things where it's like, we're supposed to be the activists for our kids and for their safety or for other kids and safety. Um, but something else your book really made me think of too, is that like our kids themselves are activists. Kelty and I talk about that a lot. Mm. And I was curious what you think, uh, are feminists born or raised? Or both? <laughs> I don't know. What's your thought on that? Uh, I think both, right? Because mm-hmm. certainly many people come to activism who don't come out of families that support that activism. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's one or the other. I guess not born. We're all born sort of a blank slate. But I think as we come into the world, we learn more and more about the world around us and develop our own opinions. So I guess they're created by the experiences we have. I will say, you know, but one of the goals for me with this book was not to talk down to young women or to people reading it in general. Um, It went along with the accessibility, but it, it wasn't just about making the language accessible. It was also about trusting that young people already know what they know, and I don't need to convince them why something's important or that their rights matter. Uh, I, I was, even though I am a mom, I wasn't going for the mom voice. I was going for the the cool aunt voice. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Uh, because I think that's the thing is like, by the time you're, I don't know, 12, even younger than that, you already can see the injustice in the world. And then what you do with that information is I guess what makes you a feminist or not. But I've been doing these workshops around the book since it came out. And uh, it's based on a workshop I did before the before the book was written, actually, with a girls' rock camp with kids as young as six and seven. And I've now had kids as young as four and five in these books, talks I'm doing at various, various places around the country. And what's amazing to adults is not to me anymore, and certainly not to the kids, what's amazing to adults is that kids as young as four and five already have the information about their world that they need to be able to look at a, we do this activity called uh, who has power. They're already able to sort of look out in the world and say, you know, some people have more power than other people because of these systems. Now they wouldn't say it like that. Mm-hmm. And part of the workshop is about giving them the language to identify what they already know, but they know it. Like if you break it down for them and walk them through it uh, without knowing that they know, they already have the implicit biases in place, honestly, to understand how the world sees them and how the world sees other people. 
so amazing. But that connects to what you said in your book when you were talking about grassroots organizing and working against structural power. And you said a baby crying is literally the first step in grassroots organizing. It's saying, I may have less power than you, but I'm going to call and rally and, <laughs> and you know pitch a fit until you care for me or until you see to my needs. And yeah. I think even kids, a baby knows how to assert their needs and as an activist for themselves. You know, And Kelty and I talk so much about how we have to allow them and nurture this self-activist, self-activism before they can actually give a shit enough about other people and extend it outwards. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's so yeah. true. I mean, you know, I have a toddler right now who's just so in tune with the feelings being experienced in the moment. <laughs> There's yeah, well, no like self-policing. And if anything, we're teaching that. And it's like such a fine line between teaching how to sort of behave in society in a way that other people feel is appropriate and also how to nurture that side of them that's just like, no, I know what I need. That is the fine line. For, mm-hmm. Seriously. Um, I loved your article on, on tantrums for Autostraddle that you wrote oh, yeah. about baby T-Rex. It was really, I mean, you, all of your articles are just so fucking beautiful and real. Yeah, like thanks. I'm literally just like laughing and crying through all of them. It's my new favorite blog. Um, but I... I love how you really talked about that fine line between how can we honor their spirit, their anger, their needs as feminists, but not lose our minds or, you know, resort to patriarchal measures in high stress situations, you know, like Kelty mm-hmm. and I really view yelling, isolating, ignoring, punishing as patriarchal um, kind of behaviors. Is that crazy? Does that sound totally extreme? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I... I think I personally take more of a middle ground approach, but I also yeah. am aware that like it plays into all these things, right? So I mean, I, I worry about that stuff all the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even things like uh, this is going to sound extreme. Even things, and I use one like uh, baby monitors, right? I have like a video baby monitor, which makes me feel very good about being able to see what's going on in there. Especially like today, where I put Remy down a little early, and I'm not sure like what's what's happening up there. When I'm not there, on the flip of that, like there's a part of me that's like, oh my God, am I setting her up to like buy into the surveillance state and <laughs> totally. to like be like, she's figured out at this point that there's like, where's her privacy her right now? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like, what am I teaching her about her, her right to privacy and, um, you know, whether it's okay for people with more power than her to surveil her in, in the place where she's supposed to feel safest? And yeah, for sure. Like, even as I'm I making remember- the decision, I'm like, I don't know if this is good or bad. Um, I'm having those thoughts. So I don't think it's, yeah. it's out, out there at all. <laughs> I think having the thoughts is like the That's key. Great. You wrote something at the end of the article that I really wanted to bring up. I think a lot of our listeners are really trying to think about big feelings and how to assert their power um, respectfully. And also to think about, Kelty and I talk a lot about thinking about what our kids are going through and doing and applying that to ourselves as adults to help us kind of rebalance. Like, what does this all mean? Wait a second. Like maybe I can actually learn something from my kid too. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you mind if I, could I read? um, I wish she could read it. I know. I wish you could read it. Yeah. I found it right here. As much as I loathe the temper tantrum stage, I love how aggressively independent Remy is. What if I was a certain of myself and emphatic about my life decisions? What if I could just yell, no, the next time a man unnecessarily and impractically holds a door for me and make him close it so I can reopen it myself? Instead of walking faster so as not to inconvenience him and mumbling thank you. What if I stood up in a work meeting and was like, I do it when someone ignored my potential? What if I openly cried when someone hurt my feelings or immediately rallied when someone hurt my pride? What if I actually took pride in all my accomplishments every day? I Thank love you. That. But I love that you said, like, doing those things, resisting and asserting yourself is taking pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, just I, I learned so much from Remy, for sure. Like, from the moment that she was gestating until now, uh, and, and probably for all of my life, it's amazing to watch another human just become more and more themselves. And especially at this age where they don't have a filter, really, it's just like they really are proud of like literally everything. Like I, for my own like mental capacity, I'm glad that I don't have to think so hard about like putting my pants on every day, but I wish I took as much pride in like every (laughs) small thing I accomplished. (laughs) 
Speaking yeah. of pants and dressing <laughs> and toys and stuff, you, I imagine, would be raising Remy without a lot of strong associations with gender norms. Yeah, I would say that's true-ish. Yeah. What? Okay. Well, what does that look like or why is it even important? Do you care about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I care about it a lot. Um, so as you can kind of tell, I tend to take a little bit of like, you know, I think one of the empowerments I, I uh, not even the one I was necessarily going to unpack, but one that I thought about a lot or think about a lot already is uh, like playing in the gray and not trying to label things good or bad, right or wrong, et cetera. Binaries and gender, I'm sorry, binaries in general are typically not helpful. And I think that certainly goes for gender as well, that a, a mm-hmm. binary gender idea of people being only male or female, and especially if you assume that they're only going to be the sex they're assigned at birth, is really limiting. So, you know, because my partner and I are both queer, my partner is also non-binary, um, we felt like, like pretty early on, it was important to us personally to give Remy a gender-neutral name uh, so that whatever ge- gender that Remy ends up being, hopefully the name will still be a name that, that feels okay. Uh, you know, there's no way to guarantee that'll be true. Um, and we also just try to not think too hard about gender day to day, to be honest. It's like a mix of th- overthinking it and like not thinking about it at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that sometimes when we talk about gender neutral, we start to skew towards masculine, especially when we're talking about gender neutral things for mm-hmm. people who are female assigned at birth. So people who are raising as girls and we tend to provide them with more masculine things. We feel much more hesitant about going the other direction, but we still sort of stay in that like binary world. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So we try to not limit is more what it is. Like if, if she has pink stuff, that's fine. And if she also has, like, what would be considered more androgynous, but honestly, just kind of like, they're like again, they skew a little bit more masculine, I think, in terms of how we think about them. So she can have pink things, and she can have, like, primary colored things, and all those things are fine. She can have clothes with frills and, and clothes without them. I honestly think it's easier to raise someone assigned female in this way, though. So my friends, I do have some friends that are taking even a step further than us, and have chosen not to use any gendered pronouns for their children and also not to reveal their sex assigned at birth to anyone outside of those who, who need to know Um, and are raising them using they pronouns. And um, I think they find it really freeing. Like, I think that is a legitimate way to go and a trend that's going to continue even among cisgender or straight parents. It's something that's happening more and more often. Um, We chose not to go that way just because it was, you know, again, it's like, it's, it's, it's a challenge and, Hopefully, Remy will grow up to know that we're a family that's going to accept whatever gender that she is. And I certainly don't presume to know that she'll grow up to be a girl. Um, we use she pronouns for now and like sort of keep the door open as much as we can. Yeah. Kelsey and I were thinking about that and talking about it because it's like we, you know, we want to be very gender fluid and expansive with their toys, with their choices, with clothes, with the books that they're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, giving them a gender pronoun is like, is very leading into who they For are sure. and, or what they should be. And like that, but that that's really tricky stuff. <laughs> it's really hard because they live. I think the reason, well, the reason we went that direction. And I, again, I think it's like very valid to not, and I'm really admire my friends that are taking a different choice, making yeah. a different choice is that like, we just, we know she's going to like watch TV and live in the world. Um, and gender is everywhere. Like as much as we try to create an environment where, you're not in a like a pink and purple box and there's also the fact that like there's tv and there there's you know other kids and other parents and you know already even at the age of two she knows quite a bit about gender some of it kind of concerning from outside of the house <laughs> right my son will he's three and had said you know i don't want to use that color because it's a girl color uh-huh. and it like it literally makes me want to like my head explode and i don't know where he hears that they don't teach that at Montessori we don't yeah. talk about or it he that just, way he just sees the trends he just himself sees and it, like notices it you know that, yeah. um mm-hmm. our daughters were talking the other day they're four and five and they were having a discussion on gender one of their teachers um has recently um said they they're non-binary and so they've been having really good discussions at school about it and they were like mom like can you be a boy and a girl and I was like, absolutely. Like you could be whatever you want. But what what would you say wording when they when they ask questions like this about identity? Kelty and I kind of say the only way we know if someone's a boy or a girl is it, how, when they tell us how they identify. Yeah. Is there any other way we could kind of talk about that with them? You know? 
Yeah, I think that's a great way to talk about it, honestly. Um, and I'm cisgender myself, so I'm not necessarily the expert here, other than that I just okay. run in a lot of LGBTQ circles. But um, yeah, I think especially at that age. So like Remy's so young that I try to have these conversations, but I'm pretty sure they're just kind of like floating over her head. Um, yeah, but, but like in books, we'll be like, we try not to say girl. I, I like just and, take out yeah. girl and boy most of the time because yeah. it's like, why is that necessary? That's just you know in terms of like operationalizing it in your life i think what you say is perfect that's perfect because there's no way to know anyone's gender unless they tell you what it is right there's no way to know by looking at them and that's a good conversation to have and reinforce i think we also i mean myself included everyone including people who are trans and non-binary like we also make assumptions about people's gender all the time and that's maybe the harder thing to model and to unlearn Mm -hmm. is to like not use pronouns for the barista who just served you your coffee or mm-hmm. for like the person who's serving you your food at a restaurant or whomever, anyone you know who you don't actually know their pronoun. That is like a bigger challenge for us to take on as individual people in general, and especially as parents who are kind of modeling that for our kids. Um, so I would say learning to speak without using pronouns is kind of a really cool, fun challenge you can set for yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I feel like people your life. Yeah. And like to like break this open way more meta, like some people listening might be like, why can't I use pronouns? What, what is the problem with saying he or she? Yeah. Why why would we want to admit doing that? It's a great question. So it's, that is sort of the first pronouns. Number one are um, not something we know by looking at someone. Right. So we use all of those implicit biases, all those things that sort of our lizard brain tells us about gender to guess whether someone would be a he or a she. So we're using things like what they wear, uh, what their voice sounds like, what their hair looks like, maybe what their name is. We don't actually know though. So if the goal is to help children understand that gender is not based on whether you wear skirts or pants or whether you have long hair or short hair, whether you wear makeup or not, uh, then we are reinforcing that every single time we use a pronoun for someone based on just like looking at them and assuming their gender. On the more, um, I would say the more important side is also that lots of trans and non-binary people exist. And we, we truly don't know someone's gender by looking at them and misgendering someone, calling them the pronoun that is not right for them is not only rude, it can also be just really actively harmful to someone to hear that mm-hmm. over and over and over again in their life. It's sort of like someone saying you don't exist or you don't matter every single time it happens. And you can imagine that compounding uh, over the course of your your day and then and then your life and of course that leads to all sorts of like other outcomes for trans and non-binary people that are really serious and need to be really um understood especially for young people so you know trans youth are uh, have the highest suicide rates across the board of all all young people even within the lgbt community um and it's not necessarily just because of bullying sometimes they have very supportive families but they just don't feel like they're ever going to be able to be happy with themselves. So it can add up in like really actively harmful and violent ways. And the other side of it, on the sort of the parenting side of it, I think it's also about helping our kids unlearn (laughs) as they're learning about gender, also like actively unlearning the things that are um, maybe introducing like bias in ways that you don't actually want that you may not even realize you're contributing to. Yeah. And that's a wonderful explanation. Thank you. And I think it's so, it's, it's especially important with kids because that's how their brains actually work to make sense of their world already. And so it's like, it's going to happen no matter what, because they're like, that's good. That's bad. And it's like, we didn't, we don't teach that. That's just how they're trying to make sense of it. So they don't have continual cognitive dissonance. Exactly. But, um, but you know, it's like, that's something we have to work against. And you're so right. But looking into this and working on this with our kids has helped us become much more aware of what we're unconsciously um, doing, you know, in our communities and just around when our kids are watching or not. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think disrupting those schemas that your brain is doing, those like, if this, then this, if this, then this is so much harder as an adult than as a kid. So if we can help kids disrupt those implicit biases really early on, we're really doing them a service. Okay. So even implicit biases about like, it doesn't even have to be about girl and boy. It can be about right and wrong, or mm-hmm. I hate it, or I love it. Mm-hmm. Or just to find that, as you said, that gray area nuance in, yeah. and nuance in everything that there's way more of a spectrum than not just their brains naturally create, but that our society is including yeah. in our, our conversations, let alone our vocabularies. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, kids are just so adaptable 
to those because they're actively learning it, right? So introducing new lessons for them is, is very normal. And it's after it's been like modeled for you and you've been, it's been ingrained in your brain over decades that it becomes hard to undo. Yeah, they seem very easygoing. I think when we talk about it with some people or hear people, they're like, I don't understand this whole pronoun thing. This is ridiculous. You know, people don't get it and even are like angry about it. It's crazy. But our kids are absolutely like, oh, it's just, uh, do you think she identifies as a girl or a boy? Like they're talking that way already. It's which so is, fluid for, for them it, that they ask each other, like, how are you identifying today? Yeah. Like I it might that. change every day. Yeah. yeah. Where it was like, I'm not wearing any dresses today. And I was like, I, I want to be like, again, that doesn't mean you're a boy or a girl. Your cousin but- wears a dress every day. He loves them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kelsey's son wears a dress every day. And, and, people call him a girl all the time. And like, oh, that's something else. We're like, do we correct somebody who mm. incorrectly identifies him? We don't want to like, we're just, I don't know. Yeah. What, what is that? It's a I usually just world. nod and like remove him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you ask them what they want yeah. if they're of the age and otherwise. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's why. So my friends that are, I have two uh, sets of parents who are in my life right now who are not using um, any gender pronouns for their kids and also aren't disclosing their sex assigned at birth. And I think that's exactly why. Like, it makes a lot of sense. Like, if you don't, it is a little confusing to people and I'm sure they sometimes get flagged from it. But I think more often than not, people just kind of accept it and move on because there's nothing to rally against other than just like mm-hmm. the very concept of it. <laughs> like, because right. they can't yeah. say like, oh, you're putting a boy in girls clothes or vice versa, right? Um, yeah. And if anything- When you don't have a label, you're not breaking the label or confirming yeah, it. Yeah, if anything, yeah. it's just like, leaves them feeling unsatisfied and they move on with their lives. <laughs> uh, totally. <laughs> well, Hannah and I have a little bit of kind of femme phobia and I wanted to know how you kind of toe the line between self-expression and expressing typical gender lines with your daughter in terms of like putting makeup on, doing your nails. Like I find myself like hiding myself putting makeup on because I don't want my kids to see it. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, but they should see that if, if that makes me feel good. And then I'm like, but do I just feel good because society's told me that I feel better when <laughs> or, I look this or way? Am I, am I representing all women to my daughter right now when yeah. she's looking at me? Like, I'm representing like yeah. cis, white, yeah. straight. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't. What do we do? <laughs> I definitely do not have a magic pill. I, mean, I worry about this okay. too. I can say that I think even queer parents worry about this. So in our family, uh, my partner goes by daddy and I go by mommy. And I have this like deep-seated fear that I'm like creating heteronormativity in my house without like wanting yeah. to, because that's also what she sees reflected most in popular culture and in media, right? Uh, so like, I'm always like, oh, but there's also families that have two mommies and two daddies or like one or neither, uh, and she's like two, so she's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> mommy and daddy. That's what I'm talking about right now is mommy, daddy, yeah. baby. Um, I kind of feel like I think it's okay to do all those things that feel right for you. It sounds like if it's something that you've decided that like this is how my I express my gender and it's how I like to embody my own personal gender expression, mm-hmm. like it's okay. Like, that's a good thing to let your kids see, I think, as long as you're not pushing them into it, right? So yeah. it's not like yeah, you're, like, of... buying them. Even if they wanted, like, a makeup kit, it's not like you're saying, yeah. like, we must do this because you are. Them. Yeah, or this is how to look pretty. Right, this, exactly. As opposed to, this makes me feel good. Or I remember my daughter saying, am I going to shave my legs when I grow up? And, mm-hmm. and I was like, if it, if it feels good for you, it feels good for me. So that's why I do it. Yeah. Instead of like, yes, that's what women do. Right. Exactly. Or, yeah, like, yeah. My that daughter is the best asked why I... Case answer. Oh, go ahead. Oh, that's it. I okay, think that's good. the best case scenario. Like, what else, what else can you say? Because you certainly... Like, again, the idea that liberation only comes when we push towards a masculine ideal is also in and of itself a little bit fucked up when you think about Pantsuit it. Pantsuit nation, mm-hmm. baby. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the idea that, like, what is... That what we equate with liberation is actually masculinity. If that's not true for you, or just in general, is in and of itself sort of saying that like there's no power the in the feminine, or that the yeah. ideal is masculine, which is mm-hmm. exactly what we're rallying against, right? It's more about being put into boxes, and it doesn't sound like you're putting your kids into boxes or yourselves. So, um, I think there's a lot of power in reclaiming femininity for yourself, not for the male gaze. <laughs> yeah. So as an individual then, mm-hmm. okay. So focusing on how does it make you feel? How does that make me feel? Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Roy's been penciling in her eyebrows with like marker because she oh sees gosh. me do my eyebrows. That's like the only makeup I put on is eyebrow. <laughs> and so she's been doing that lately and she has like great eyebrows. She doesn't even need to do that, but I like, don't say anything. I'm just like, Oh my God, do you feel great that way? All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Remy yeah. is like really into watching. I, it's a little worrying to me. Like already, uh, she's very into like how I do my makeup. And I think it's just like a normal kid thing too. Like mm-hmm. to like watch your parents, what they're doing and, just fascinated with the process. Yeah, and makeup is fascinating. It's like coloring on your face. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's art. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk like, about an empowerment first? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Did, did we kind of hit the empowerment, the playing in the gray, or was there something else you wanted to talk about? I mean, all of these are good. That's the one that sort of came up naturally. Um, the empowerment that resonates most with me is uh, this one, we don't own our children. You know, that really, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, especially practicing feminist parenting or trying to practice the difficult slog of trying to practice feminist parenting, <laughs> this is, it's a, it's a big one, right? Is um, balancing kind of like we said before, that role as the person who is there to protect your child and to, you know, really like I, I've never experienced a love like I have for my kid. I've never, I gotta tell you, I'm one of those people that didn't really like kids ever. Maybe not still. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just love Remy so, so, so much. I would do anything for her. I've never had that kind of relationship with anyone else in my life ever. Um, so I would literally do anything for her, but also nurturing and trying to balance within myself, like a respect for her own body and her own mind and her own experience. That really resonates with me. And I think I don't have the answer as a challenge all the time, especially when we start talking about these sort of like gender norm things and not knowing where she's picking things up or is me being like femme in and of myself contributing to it or all of that, you know. So we're getting to the age where she's starting to articulate her own opinions and desires and interests. And so one of the things she's been saying lately is that her favorite color is pink, which is like maybe my worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> I'm totally. trying so hard to like give you We should start a club. Our, oh, our daughter's yeah. two and we're like, you can have more than yeah. one favorite. What's the other yes. one? Like I keep asking, hoping it'll be yeah. a different color. Um, <laughs> she's like, my favorite is pink. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> today, you mean today. <laughs> yeah, like I'll again in a week. We'll see what changes. But like really just, you know, that's that's being able to like let her own that without putting any sort of value judgment on it is like maybe the simplest version of it and the bigger one of course like i know this is a conversation we're all having uh who are thinking about the sort of attention out of their children is around consent and it's been um important to me as i know it is to a lot of parents now to not like force remy to kiss or hug anyone she doesn't want to and to sort of give her other options for physically interacting with people uh, including not physically interacting with people um to sort of just try to preserve the idea that her body is is hers from a really young age, which is challenging sometimes with family members who really want a kiss and a hug. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. How do you navigate that? Uh, I've had conversations with most, or I usually just, so this is where it's like hard because I want her to be able to speak up for herself, but I also try to set the stage for her. So if someone is pressuring her for a hug or a kiss, um, I will usually like interject in the situation and say uh, only if you want to, or is it okay if so-and-so gives you a hug? And she's usually okay with that. Actually being like, okay, you can hug me. Um, And I usually give her an out too. Like you don't have to, if you don't want to. And it's hard, I think for an adult to argue with that. (laughs) It's so interesting though. We've noticed it and just gone through this with our parents too. Just, trying to say, can I give you a hug as opposed to come give me a hug yes. or kiss? It's, it's, it's phrasing, the phrasing changes everything, you know, it's really interesting. Yeah. It really gives We've had to talk to it. like go straight to the source and tell our parents like, we're, you know, we're not, we're not doing that. Please offer and then be cool. Try to be cool if they don't want to, yeah. they might not want to. Yeah. We've yeah. had that conversation with our families. It's like, people doesn't know that well, that it's like, it's always a, ch- it's always, I, I struggle with like when to stop and like have a serious conversation mm-hmm. and when to just kind of like try to diffuse it and move on. Yeah. We've had issues too with, um, especially when the kids were younger and people would, even when we're holding them in our arms, just come up and start tickling them oh, and yeah. squidging them. And they're not used to being touched like that by people mm-hmm. and, um, or picked up or even. picked up. Yeah. Randomly yeah. picked up and stuff like that. It's been tricky. It's a, it's interesting watching like, so it's, I, I find it somewhat easier with adults in that, like I'm more willing to like, just like be like, no, or 
like, you know, whatever, um, deal with the situation. It's interesting when she's playing with other kids because they are or, or, in both directions. Cause she also doesn't have like a good idea of like how to treat other people's bodies and vice mm-hmm. versa. So especially when she's playing with like older kids who want to like pick her up or like take her hand or whatever. And she may or may not be into that. That's been like a little more challenging for me is like talking to like my niece, who's like a little bit older, who really wants to hang out with her and play with her. But sometimes Remy doesn't want to be like held or picked up and trying to like explain that to her. And the other director. Yeah, you're her proxy kind of. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes when Remy's playing with other kids, she'll like want to give them a hug or whatever. And they're just like not into it. And trying to have that conversation with a two-year-old isn't always easy. Yeah, totally. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the work, isn't it? One way that's helped us is just phrasing it as readiness. Mm -hmm. So it's not saying a hard stop no, but it's saying like, when they're ready, they'll give you a hug. Or when she's ready to have her face touched, she'll let you know. (laughs) She's not ready (laughs) for that life. She's just not ready to get her nose picked by you. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. I like the readiness. I'm definitely going to take that and adopt it. Yay. Excellent tip. I'm wondering if we could have you read um, the This Book is for Girls part, since you have it in front of you. Oh, Sure. We just love this section um, right at the beginning of Girls Resist. So would you mind reading it? Yeah, not at all. This book is for girls. This book is for girls who have something to say, for girls who have something to get off their chests, for girls who are ready to use their voices to slash through injustice. This book is for girls who want to live boldly, who have a red hot fire deep down in their gut, who are smart enough to be mad and bold enough to demand change. This book is for girls who have had enough of inequity, who believe in a world where all people are treated fairly, who care deeply about their own rights and the rights of others. This book is for girls who are loud, who are quiet, who are shy, who are outgoing, who are book smart, who are street smart, who are funny, who are serious, and who are a little bit of all of the above. That was fun. That was really fun. I have a lot I want to talk about still. I know. Long <laughs> after show. We could have talked to Kaylin for like five hours. Yeah. Five days. It was really five, It was really good. I have so many more questions for her as well. I, know. I need to she, like, go back uh, into the archive and dig through all her autostraddle mm-hmm. articles. Please do, everybody. Yeah. Dive on, into her sites. We'll list them all here at the end of our little um, chit-chat. Mm-hmm. But um, I want to talk about three things. Okay. I, I was just about to ask you, Cal. You were on it. I'm, okay. I'm all over it. <laughs> I want to talk a, a little bit about consent. I want to talk a little bit more about gender. And I want to talk a little bit more about resistance. Okay. I feel like those are three things that we like talking about a lot mm-hmm. anyway. And they came up a ton yeah. in this episode. Right. Yeah. Um, consent. I think, what's that noise? I see capers in the fruit field. There's some farming going on on our farm, everybody. <laughs> she is sticking a farm post thing into the Pardon the, the interruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, we are moving for, on. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, we live on a farm. We're in a little shed sort of between our two houses right now recording. Mm-hmm. Um, hence the, the birds and bees and, you know, farm sounds. Farm sounds. Okay. Talk about consent, Hannah. Consent. I mean... Consent is a human right. A consent of our bodies, of our space. It, it's something that we believe in for adults, that we are fighting for as women. Um, the right to not be touched when we don't want to be, the right to privacy, all of these things. And I think that it's um, it's not something we afford our children that often. I think we just naturally think, well, I'm their parent. I, I can just bypass this whole consent thing and I'm just getting shit done. I'm caregiving. They know I love them. They know I respect their bodies, but so I'm just going to do what I need to do. I'm going to change that diaper. I'm going to pick them up. I'm going to instigate a game of wrestling or tickling. You know, you know, why, gonna, the, you know why I think this grab is that hard. Burger. You know what, why I think this is hard for us? What? Because the baby starts in, literally inside us as part of us. And then slowly only extends away from us. Mm-hmm. Then they're on they're on our boob. Then they're on our lap. They're always in our arms. We're always touching them. We don't we don't need consent to hold them when they need us to, to hold them mm-hmm. all day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We start we start in the most anti-consent way with our children, and we have mm-hmm. to basically learn consent as they age. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so, really tough. That's so a tough. lot of scaffolding for us to be doing, yeah. letting go little by little by little as they are appropriating their own bodies and their own space mm-hmm. and creating that individual separateness yeah. that is beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, 
I like how Kaylin mentioned how she really considers that, you know, the pressure we can sometimes put on our kids for hugging and kissing other people, let alone us or, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely started with our kids being like, you don't have to hug grandma if you don't want to, or, you know, tell my dad, dad, don't demand a kiss. It's not okay. And then I'm like, oh gosh, I still kind of do that. Uh-huh. So I had to start outer and then come back to myself to be like, stop. I, I know you want to just like devour their face right now, mm-hmm. but just, you got to ask first. Yeah. And consent before they're even able to speak. It's not like we're talking about consent. Like, is it okay if I, this, and then they say, yes, no consent is. And that's what's so problematic in our culture with me too. And everything going on right now, they're like, they didn't officially ask. Consent is also this huge gray area where you have to feel it. You have to, to communicate in a lot of other ways, especially with a child who is, um, nonverbal, what consent means? Does it mean they lift up their shirt to be tickled? That is giving you consent. Mm -hmm. Does it mean they turn their head away or they start kind of going, ah, that is saying no. You know, Mm -hmm. what are their signs of consent that they give us? You know, when, when we just swoop behind them and pick them up and they start wiggling their legs, that's saying, I didn't want to be fucking picked up. Put me down. I did not give consent. Mm -hmm. When they reach their arms out towards us, that is giving consent to be picked up. But I think that it asks of us to be more highly aware and more highly sensitive to the signs that our kids are giving, especially, especially before they're verbal Mm -hmm. and uh, and finding, and finding ways around it, keeping a respectful dialogue going all Mm -hmm. the time is is one way to do it. Right. I think consent goes both ways as well. And something I've noticed with really being focused on making sure our kids give us consent is that they are more respectful of us giving them consent. What do you mean? Give an example. For example, as in, I don't, I am very careful when I, you know, dive in or grab my son or, or pick him up or do things with him. And so he is also more careful about jumping onto my lap or diving onto my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And we still have to work with it sometimes when I say, you, you know, you didn't ask to d- jump onto my back. Could you ask next time? Cause it, it really hurt my neck or it surprised me or I wasn't very steady. And so I'm noticing that the kids are asking consent of one another too. Mm-hmm. But I think that happens a lot where we're like, Oh my God, I'm like a human crawling gym mm-hmm. because my kids are treating me like crap. And that's an opportunity to teach them consent as well, not just how we treat them, but how they treat us, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe it's a reminder that we've been a little lax on our, you Consent know, game. on our end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. But yeah. Um, well, what are some other, <clears throat> we've sort of mentioned a few, but what are some other ways through the years, our kids are two, three, four, and five right now mm-hmm. that we've been trying to practice you know, asking consent mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, some things that really, I think you have to go with the things that really bother you. And those are like the touchstones to be like, Hey, maybe I should be considering this for my kid. Like for example, um, like I had a real problem with like snotty noses mm-hmm. and wanting to just dive in there with a tissue and just wipe it. And my kids don't like that. They, who likes, never, who like likes someone that? just grabbing their face right. all of a sudden. And so I've really but, had, but, I think the problem is most kids don't really like getting their noses wiped anyway. So mm-hmm. they are evade you. They mm-hmm. walk away. They make it a tricky situation, which f- pushes your reinforces to yeah. just sneak in and to do break a sneak consent one and to yeah. break consent right. to do it. Because it takes more work on your end to get them to come over to you to do it. Right. You yeah, know? for sure. But I think also it's also working this consent with them about their you know nose blowing or wiping or whatever because I have to do it carefully, because I have to do it thoughtfully, because it takes a little longer, they've also learned to do it themselves a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And that's the cool thing about consent is when you actually pay attention to that and and are respectful of it, they are able to build independence a lot sooner. That goes with diaper changes as well when yeah. they're helping. That goes with getting dressed. If we could, we, we could just dress our kids f- like till they're five. But when, when they're it's really helping tempting us, to them, yeah. like run past you and you like pull a shirt down over their heads because yeah. you've got to get shit done. I know right? it's tough. <laughs> it's really hard. It, that, it, it requires of us just this, this, this new lens and a lot more patience and slowing down and intention, making mm-hmm. eye contact, communicating, doing mm-hmm. all of those things. I think privacy is another um, way. I don't know if it's in the consent realm, Especially but it feels for like older kids. Yeah. yeah. But that, you know, like my two year old or I guess three now, but can say, I need some privacy in the bathroom and I respect his privacy, you know, and he's able to do a lot of his bathroom things a lot better now because he needed that privacy. Mm -hmm. And guess what? 
I get privacy now in the bathroom where I used to get like jumped on mm-hmm. and when I was just trying to sit for like five minutes by myself. Mm-hmm. They respect my privacy because I've respected theirs. So it's kind of a, a great deal yeah, if you con- can start consent it. Consent is really all about respect. Yeah. Yeah. Even in a, even small ways, you know, we can start building that. I remember you sitting with your daughter when she was like maybe 18 months old and you were having to either do like the nose Frida on her or do medicine. Mm-hmm. And medicine is one of those things too, where it's like, it's that's their body, mm-hmm. but you need to get them the medicine. We're not talking about brushing hair here where you're like, okay, I'll wait a few more days until they're ready to brush their hair. Mm-hmm. This is like medicine must go in mm-hmm. now. And I remember you sitting with her for like an hour and it wasn't a standoff. Mm-mm. It was a just looking at the medicine thing, talking about how where it's gonna go, making silly jokes about it. And basically like slowly respectfully convincing her to to let you shove it down her throat Mm -hmm. like it was amazing like most parents don't have the patience for that I don't know how I did in that moment I don't know either but but she loves taking medicine now yeah and I think that a lot of times um the the concern that I have about it and the beyond just the basic respect issue is that we can create actually create aversions to these types of things and resistance to these types of things for no reason, literally just because they were resisting because of our approach, the, the broken consent, Yeah, you know, that our kids all of a sudden they, they were like, no, I'm not going to brush my hair. And I hate, I hate, don't want no to more touch diaper, it. No more diaper changes. Right. You can't, you right. can't get them but, to but change But a lot of diaper, times yeah. that's because of our, la- our, our disrespectful approach that's created a power struggle that then makes them want to push away from brushing their hair or lying down for a diaper change. And then we have to force it more. And then we're creating this, perpetuating this, this negative mm-hmm. interaction. And then they have negative associations with it. Yeah. So anything we, we, beyond just general respect, anything we care about, it, you know, supporting and nurturing in them, we have to do it in a respectful, slow way where they can be taking part of it and we can be doing yeah. part of well, it. Well, I think that, I think, Half of the the consent thing is sort of those things like swooping and picking them up or tickling them or grabbing them for a kiss or doing those things. And then and the other half of the consent thing is things that need to get done mm-hmm. to them. And, and then in within that, we will be what working the four powers. Those are all of the situations where we right. feel that we need to just dive in there and control. Okay, I'm going to have to pin you down and put the medicine in your mouth. Okay, it's time to brush your hair. You're going to sit here and we're going to brush your hair until it's... Or I'll or, take away whatever. Yeah. Or we can't, you know, you know yeah. we can't have dessert until whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, those moments that we feel forced to control to get something done that has to do with their bodies that we really should be getting consent from. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be working the four powers because we're not going to say, can I brush your hair? And they're not going to say yes right away every time. And then we're not going to over control mm-hmm. about it. We need to be doing other stuff. Absolutely. But generally speaking, let's keep thinking big picture about consent. Like we want our kids to go out into the world and not be touched inappropriately by people, not be um, pushed to the limit, not get a bad haircut and just be like, thanks and tip them. Like mm-hmm. they, we have to, it goes from the small to the really big here with consent, not accidentally take advantage of other people or push mm-hmm. boundaries with other people. Go to the doctor and you say, know? why, how, right. what's going to happen? Tell me everything. Exactly. Yeah. They, they need to know that their bodies belong to them and that they have every right to make the choices for their bodies. And when we make those choices over and over in these daily repetitive activities, we're telling them that someone with bit more power is able to make those choices and should make those choices for their bodies. And that is not what we want to be teaching them. So that's the bottom line for me on this. Okay. What about the whole gender thing? I love mm-hmm. that Kaylin was talking about raising Remy without strong associations with gender norms and just mm-hmm. the ways that binaries aren't help- helpful at all and mm-hmm. how we can bust that binary world. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that some people listening to this might be hearing this and be like, I don't understand. <laughs> this yeah. sounds crazy. My girl will always be a girl that matching, you know, g- you know, cisgender matching genitalia with gender. Mm-hmm. Th- that's how things go. Who th- very sex few people are gender, right, period. Sex equals gender. Very few people lie in the middle. I think that that's how we grow up. We grow up to believe that in the gender binary that, that truly like, the genitalia matches the sex matches the gender. the gender and that's how it should always be and that is actually very untrue and i don't have any of the stats with me but there's a huge spectrum of 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 difference here and the problem you and i see and that people write about with with this gender binary world is that it's pushing people and expectations and and beliefs towards these these extremes of 
girl and boy, male and female, masculine, feminine, when that is just not how we live. That is not how we feel. That's not how we grow. That's not who we are. And it can be really problematic for anybody who doesn't fit that automatic, um, that automatic binary. And so I don't think anyone really fits that automatic binary. We create it. It's so absolutely socially constructed. Totally. I, I think Google Judith Butler she wrote uh, the book Gender Trouble, I think back in the 70s or 80s. And she believes that gender is continually acted out um, like through cultural expectations, which creates an illusion of stable gender identities. But in truth, it is completely socially constructed. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are differences in, I mean, there are small scientific differences in male versus female, like the sex, the, the body, the physiology. Mm-hmm. But as far as gender and gender expression go, that that is totally socially constructed. Yeah, um, but I I agree with Kaylin that she said gender is everywhere, mm-hmm. and we can't you know we we see the ways that our our kids are already being impacted by what they see, and to a lot of people that's reinforcing. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, my my son like yours mm-hmm. says, hey, pink is a girl color, mm-hmm. and and to someone who's hasn't been thinking so much about this, you might be like, yeah, okay, so he's seeing that, so that's probably true. So I'll be like, yeah, it is a girl mm-hmm. color. That's what I see as well. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to say is. Does it have to be? Right. Why? Um, and and try not to freak the fuck out that they're already being impressed upon mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. You know. Another thing I wanted to bring up too is why we talked about kind of like gender neutrality and how it's easier for girls to kind of have both sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's easier to be gender neutral for a girl or gender fluid or, or gender fluid. Uh-huh. Yeah, like we're all of a sudden our culture is saying, okay, yes, girls can be exposed to all of these colors, to wearing pants and shorts, to playing with all of these other toys as well when they used to be sort of stuffed into this sort of box. More masculine box or what? Or More feminine box. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But mm-hmm. but I feel like we, we still aren't affording our sons that that benefit. That flexibility. You know, right. And uh-huh. it occurred to me, we did bring up the fact that my son, who's almost three, wears dresses a lot, mm-hmm. like almost all the time. Um and it made me wonder, it, it was obvious for us, like we had girls first, so we have a lot of dresses, so we have them available for the boys to mm-hmm. wear if they want, to play dress up, not yeah. just, but even just daily wear. And it made me wonder if our boys had been born first, would we have bought them a bunch of dresses to wear? I don't I don't know if we would have. I don't know either. Yeah. And, and, and it's that, not like we shop boy aisle, girl aisle. No. Like, I don't even know why there are boys and girls sections. Me either. Like, don't get me started on all that. I know. That. But, but, but it made me wonder, oh my gosh, I don't, I'm not sure that it would have occurred to me to do that. And yeah. I'm really grateful that we had the girls first so that we could be bringing more of those supposedly you know, mm-hmm. female um, right. colors, clothing, stuff. Well, and the same goes for toys. I think that yeah. if we'd had boys first, I think a lot of our family and friends probably would have given us a lot more trucks and a lot more and fewer dolls. And I yeah. think that the boys have loved um, growing up around just a ton of options in our homes. You yeah. know? But I don't know if we would have started out with having having dolls and as many babies. And I know. You know I'm just not sure. We've well, grown a lot through this. I know we have. Yeah. We've got a, a long way to, to go as far as awareness. And I just, I like how Kaylin talked about this around the why. And um, it's not just because it's the cool thing to do to have a light green, gender neutral baby nursery. Like there's some real reasons behind this shit. Yeah. And it's to, to say, fuck this gender binary thing that's socially constructed and that restricts and constricts and limits people's self-expression. Um, and who they are, you know, mm-hmm. we are looking for flexible fluidity across the boards, right? We're human beings. Yeah. Um, we're not just men or women. So yeah. Anyway, I think that that was a great talk. And I think that next season we're going to have, um, a, a lot more conversations about this type of thing mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. That sort of leads into the last topic, which is resistance. Mm-hmm. And a, a big reason that we brought Kaylin on the podcast her amazing resist girls resist book, which is Mm -hmm. so inspiring in so many ways. And, uh, we spoke to her about why we connected to it. I don't know if it was in our, actually in the recording, but we both, Hannah and I both wear little resist necklaces around our necks. And sometimes people ask us, what, what does resist mean to you? Why Mm -hmm. do you, and we've been starting to ask people what resist means to them. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're like, Oh my God, so many things, so many things. Um, I mean, and we're still like refining our pitch because there's so many ways and reasons that we wear these, but resist as, at least in as far as our kids go. And what we were talking with Kaylin about is that resist is 
an honorable, powerful, what was Kaylin's quote, prideful Mm -hmm. thing to do. It is basically our human right to protect our inner authority, to protect our spirits, to protect our body. That is the power we have, is the power to resist. And that's what people have been doing for centuries. That is what the women's movement has been doing, is saying, no, fuck this. I'm going to resist this control. I'm going to resist this oppression. I'm going to resist these standards and expectations and beliefs, and I'm going to make some change. Mm -hmm. And that's what resist is the first step in saying something needs to change. And that's why you and I, Kelsey, really value this resist in our children, which I think in our culture is like kids should not resist. Resisting is, oh, wait, that sounds really familiar. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We want docile, compliant, friendly, you know, easygoing, helpful, little, you know, nice. Like, I mean, that sounds a lot like what the patriarchy has wanted women to be be and do for many years. Yeah. You know, that people have wanted servants to be, slaves to be Mm -hmm. for so long. Um, And that is not what we want with our kids. We want our kids, we want to understand their resistance because resistance comes when we over control. And that is their self-protective mechanism to say, whoa, whoa, whoa there. I'm feeling a little bit of resistance here that my body or my spirit may be compromised. And I need to understand, we need to connect Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a really big ask for all of us as parents to be like, wait a second, let me reverse engineer this. When they resist, it's that's it's, not the, on them. It, when they resist, it has something to do with me. Or just <laughs> even thinking of it in terms of like when I feel resistance from my kid, looking at that as their spirit, mm-hmm. as something that we don't want to squash, but we want to keep fanning the flame and working with it. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Alfie Cohn and Unconditional Parenting talks so much about um, the research studies behind um, kids who have been over-controlled and how easily they're manipulated and taken advantage of as teens, as adults, um, basically brainwashed and constantly thinking, oh, whatever the higher power is over me, I'm going to listen to them and do what they do. And what we want to be doing is raising critical thinkers, independent movers and shakers, thought leaders, uh, people who say, fuck that system, I believe something different. Don't touch me that way. I, I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable hey, I have an idea and it, it's not what everyone else is saying. And I think that that just goes against everything we've learned as kids and, and believe as parents. It's a really big ask, but that's what we're talking about the next generation here. Mm-hmm. Let's know? talk about next season. Okay. <clears throat> the next generation of our podcast. Of upbringing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when, when's it going to come back? How long are we taking a break for? We haven't really decided. I don't know. I like to divide the year like pretty evenly and I get a little anal. I'm sorry, yeah. Kelsey. Hopefully just a month. Um, we're hoping just a summer month. Yeah. Take off August. Mm-hmm. And um, we're... Uh, we've, we've got, got one some, more episode coming. Yeah, we've got some yeah. little things to talk about for next season. So we'll have a, a, a power of summer break episode like we did with our power of spring break episode. And we'll we'll leave everyone with, um, with a little, hopefully some inspiration and some information on what we're up to and... Um, Maybe some jokes. Sure. A couple good jokes. Some jokes. <laughs> Our last uh, lullaby bye. We'll we'll do that as well. Yeah. Um, but I think resistance is going to be playing a huge front and center role in what upbringing is going to be moving forward. It's been a great couple couple seasons learning about who we are and what we're about, and I think we're just getting closer and closer and closer to to kind of our own spirit. Mm-hmm. With this. I agree. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Okay. You can visit Kaylin at KaylinRich.com. Can you spell her name? Sure. K-A-E-L-Y-N-R-I-C-H.com and BitchMedia.com to learn more about Kaylin and her incredible work. You can also find her on Instagram at KaylinRich. Yes. And as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on our conversation with Kaylin. So call, DM, email, Mm -hmm. contact us through our website. We only were able to get to so many examples and points on gender and consent and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Like we love talking about this stuff. So get in touch with us Um, and subscribe, rate and review so other people can find us. We love that. Lastly, you're doing an amazing job. We are so proud of you and we're right here with you, taking steps to better understand ourselves, our kids, and one another. So thanks for being here. We're all growing up together. Till next time. And 
now for the lullaby bye portion of our show, created in the hopes of inspiring us all to personalize our song singing experience with our kids. Mm-hmm. What do you have for me this weekend? I have a Don't Get Me Wrong by mm-hmm. Chrissy Hine. The Pretenders. Yes, our favorite pretender. Um, what, what I love saying? that song. I what feel like you yeah. wish you wrote this song a oh little bit. Oh my God, I love it. It's just, it's one, it's one of those songs that just makes me so happy to hear mm-hmm. always. And not just because it was like in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion or Bridget <laughs> Jones's diary. <laughs> Cause we listened to a lot of pretenders growing up. Yeah, and we so did. I feel like it's like, it's got that happy driving in the van feel. But the, I think that's what I really like about a lot of these lullaby buys that we do is that they, each one of them is a nice, slow, like lullaby type song, but came from a poppier song. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that energy still from mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like then that positive association, like right. singing a ballad, like bridge over troubled water or something. It just doesn't quite have that same energy, upbeat yeah. energy to it. Yeah. Um, but that's what this is all about. The, these lullaby buys is like, you can take any song and slow it down and enjoy it with your kids in the car or even, you know, yeah, nighttime stuff, nighttime, yeah, especially <clears throat> does one of your kids in particular like this one. I feel like I've been singing to both of them recently and you've been doing tandem bedtime a little bit. Yeah. Lots of tandem yeah. bedtime. So they kind of just both hang, hang and listen. Well, I think you should sing it cause we have to go to swim. Okay. Swim practice. All right. Here we go. Don't get me wrong If I'm acting so distracted I'm thinking about the fireworks That go off when you smile Don't get me wrong If I split like like refracted I'm only off to wander across a moonlit mile. Once in a while, two people meet, seemingly for no reason, they just pass on the street. Suddenly thunder showers everywhere. Who can explain the thunder and rain, but there's something in the air. 